Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is Season 1, That Miracle That Happened, That One Time. So many new listeners, thank you very much for coming along to the program. It's uh, a pretty strange place, but we hope to get to the bottom of the causes of the Industrial Revolution, the miracle. You can email me directly, hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com, or reach out to me on Twitter. And this is episode 130. This will be the final episode of our arc on Joel Mokier's The Enlightened Economy. Episode 130. Okay, now we're on part three, the final part, the question of, did the state influence the Industrial Revolution? What role did institutions play is the more traditional ways to phrase the question. And we need a lot of context to hope to answer this question well. Well, we could ask what the state was about. We could move from abstractions like successful meta-institution, monopoly of violence, rules, and standard settings that we talked about last episode, solving the commitment problem and moving on to asking, what did it do? Day to day, what was it on about? There's a one-word answer, and that's war. War. That's about 90% of the spending in taxes. Basically, Britain was the highest taxed country, taxed more fairly than the continent, but the English paid more tax. They were ruled by taxpayers. That's what Parliament is, and people were willing to pay. Not eager to pay, just willing, and not fairly taxed. I mean, customs and excise taxes were regressive, but much more fairly taxed. 1700 to 1850, there weren't any fair tax systems. Have there ever been? War. 90% of spending and taxes and 90% of the civil government employees' jobs had a taxing function to support taxes to pay for direct war expenses and pay government debt, which was created to fund war. So one word, war, is not an exaggeration. This is tricky to understand because we've talked so much about providing public goods, criminal and civil justice, turnpike trusts, enclosure, canals, railroads, ports, lighthouses, and all that. And Parliament was involved in all these things, clearing up the property ownership issues. But these were privately funded in this time, though local government got involved, independently sometimes, and it was local governments that maintained local access roads, often their own ports, and of course did poor relief. The central government was not involved at first and only slowly got involved. The 1830s were sort of an inflection with slowly increasing central government involvement, but beginning from a very low level. And so this is why the term, the fiscal military state, gets thrown around, even though many historians hate the concept. It's just a tool to see the period, rather than a platonically ideal description of the period. But basically, you can see the government of Britain, France, Prussia, the Empire, and all the others as a machine that raised money for war, current war, if one was going on. For Britain, that was about half the years in our time frame. And if there was no war, there was debt to be paid for the last several wars, until after the defeat of Napoleon, when Britain had debt equivalent to 170% or so of GDP, far more than the U.S. has today. So that's the picture. In the context of a rivalry with other kingdoms, there was competition for trade, markets, and technological advantage. No wonder there was that legacy of mercantilism to shake off. Now, there is a sense in which the fiscal military state, 
just indulge me on that term for a bit, helped the economy as well. The history of the foundry, iron production, is one of the early Tudor monarchs supporting the creation of foundries, so they don't need to import so much iron. Thomas Cromwell's and Henry VIII's policy of breaking up the monasteries had, as Anton Howes has shown, have the very weird effect of eliminating the majority of lead production outside England. And then the Royal Navy finally eliminating the scourge of piracy was obviously good for business. There's also a sense, hearkening back to episode 122, where Lloyds of London was at war with the French privateers. The French would take ships, thousands per war, but construction of new ships outpaced losses, and the insurers, Lloyds, kept insuring, so trading voyages kept happening. The French privateers could not beat Lloyds. All this is true, and yet, to be sure, living in Britain 1700 to 1850, didn't feel like a fiscal military state from the inside. The haters of the term have a valid point, too. And you can't go so far as to say that war had a beneficial effect for the merchants, either. A detailed look is provided by Mokir, and it seems that they were better off with peace. Uh, let's go back to tax. Crown and Parliament garnered 3 to 4% of GDP in tax in the years immediately before the Glorious Revolution, 1688. Then there was war or the several wars I like calling the Second Hundred Years' War, by 1715 the tax collected was about 10%, where it stayed until 1790, drifting up to 12%, rising to 18% by 1810, settling down to 13% after the war ended. And during this 127-year Second Hundred Years' War, Nominal taxes paid by the British rose 16 times, <laughs> 16 times, six times when corrected for inflation. Uh, so there's a ratchet effect here. You get a war, and well, you got to raise taxes. The first war in 1689 got the imposition of a land tax, and Isaac Newton fixing British coinage and breaking counterfeiting rings so that King William's subsidies to his allies would be highly valued which, you have to admit, is a highly amusing waste of talent. In peace, you have a lot of debt to pay back, so taxes remain high. The next war costs still more, taxes go up. In peace, the taxes remain high, rents repeat until 1815. For the 1792 to 1815 war, Pitt the Younger and his successors only raised 58% of the cost of the war from taxes. The rest was debt. But this was a lot better than the 18th century wars, where only about 30% of the wars were financed by tax. Mokir says 20%, but here I believe that's a typo. Now, what he says about the system after the peace in 1815 is profound. Quote, after 1815, in the absence of expensive wars and with an expanding economy, taxation rates declined, and by the middle decades of the century, the proportion of GNP collected by taxes had fallen to 10%. The pattern of public finance in the decades after 1815 reflects the paradigm of the new political economy. An enlightened world was one of peace, low government spending, and fiscal prudence. The Victorian state, by all accounts, had a smaller footprint on the economy than the Hanoverian state, and its impact, as measured by the ratios of tax to GDP, was lighter than in Germany or France. Unquote. The point about France is excellent. France had regime change big time. The revolution overthrows the Bourbons and their debts, and 1815 brings them back 
The debts are gone, but the victorious allies impose massive war reparations. As big, given the size of the French economy, as the Allies imposed on Germany in 1919. Think about that. Supposedly, the wartime reparations imposed on the Weimar Republic strangled it with hyperinflation and led to the rise of the National Socialists. It's clear that it could have gone a different way. Although, to be fair, the Weimar Republic was also burdened with the World War I war debt. With France in 1815, in a similar situation to the Weimar Republic, smarter men got together and raised debt to fully pay off the reparations, paying them off early, years in advance, and then got on with the business of economic growth with hardly any ill effects. And back to British debt. We've covered in episode 123 how the growth of debt led to financial sophistication and a securities industry capable of not only financing the war, then also funding with debt and equity the construction of railroads in Britain and the rest of the world, allowing participation by the middle classes in this increase of wealth. Finally, a way to hold wealth in a way that was not land. Before the growth of British debt in the 18th century, you only had terrible choices. Buy land, socially and legally, that might not be allowed, or you might not be able to keep it, so you could bury silver like the Vikings did to such a huge degree in the 10th and 11th centuries, or you could give the money to the church to get out of purgatory, investing in the afterlife, as it were, or more immediately in the construction of great cathedrals and monasteries. So the social consequences of the fiscal military state includes this amazing positive social change. David Hume was one of the first to point this out, and modern economists mainly agree. You have not only a safe place to invest and store value, but a new medium of exchange. The consoles were marketable, and the secondary markets encouraged the new forms of private and corporate debt. Essentially, government debt is a substitute for land as an asset, and far more flexible and liquid than land for most purposes. Now, these taxes in Britain were 70-75% to raised by customs and excise, similar in concept to tariffs and sales taxes, and of course they were mainly on beer. 70% of the 70% came from beer. Well, beer, hops, malt, and the tools of brewing were 70%. So that explains my throwaway line, the Second Hundred Years' War was financed by an ocean of suds. And there were social consequences. For one thing, the government put insanely high taxes on wine at the behest of the brewers, who then paid their excise more willingly, and their cooperation was a vital part of this. Port got special privileges for the alliance with Portugal. And for most of this period, the deal was that uh, the tax on port was one-third the tax on French wine. And more than that, the government encouraged consolidation of brewers into bigger, easier-to-control groupings. It made price-fixing and a low level of competitive pressure possible, so that the consumer got gouged twice, unquote. And I bet Mokir would agree it was really three times. I mean, high prices, high taxes, and very likely lower quality than competition would have created. There was also a gin mania in the 1720s and 1730s, handled poorly by the authorities, lots of unnecessary death by bathtub gin and riots inspired by legislation, which might not have happened if beer were cheaper. Of course, the high prices resulted in a lot of cheap home brews and lethal bathtubs and encouraged smuggling. And smuggling was actually one of the biggest industries of the 18th century, 
It had the usual consequences of murder and a rise in organized crime. Sugar was one of the worst tariffs imposed as a weapon against France and Spain, but had crime and murder as an unintended consequence. And of course, the Molasses Acts were one of the acts that started off the chain reaction leading to the American Revolution. Again, we're back on war. All these acts were voted for by patriotic country squires, certain they were helping to defeat France, the enemy. So it's funny and odd that beer financed the Second Hundred Years' War, but it does show that a lot of the problems besetting life in the 21st century were the same in the 18th. Why does that surprise me? Obviously, it should not. I want to go back to the idea from David Hume, a peaceful man, who pointed out that war had a positive externality, the public debt. And when the public debt started to fall from its deranged level, of, you know, 260% of GDP by the 1820s, the secondary markets were sophisticated enough and were also looking for new markets to allow entrepreneurs to issue bonds to the public. And they did this for turnpike trusts, canals, and later, the railroads. Now, uh, Larry Neal in his book, The Monetary, Financial, and Political Architecture of Europe, quote, suggests that this was the underlying goal of 18th century British government finance all along, unquote. I mean, what? They read Hume and said, hey, let's build up enormous government debt and it'll work out great down the road? Mokir calls that kind of thinking excessive. Because the debt went from 35% of GDP to 260% in the course of 100 years, and contemporaries were alarmed. They were often alarmed. We saw them get out of wars earlier than they should have without getting the full benefits of war, partly because the debt terrified them. The War of the Spanish Succession ended that way. The Seven Years' War, with young George III and his new ministers pushing for a close of that super-successful war because of it, and George III hamstrung his own revenues because of debt anxiety, causing all kinds of problems, including the insistence that the damn Americans were going to pay for their defense just like the Irish did. Go back to the American Revolution episodes. The Americans in the 1760s looked at the Irish case and very consciously were clear they did not want to be ruled like the Irish were ruled. Nobody would want that. We started by saying that 90% of the central government spending was for war, and 90% of the employees were collecting taxes. Hence, this smells a bit fiscal military state-ish. And we can't say that all this taxation and spending was good for the economy, though there were some positive externalities in the form of government debt. The point I want to make in the context of the miracle was it could have been a hell of a lot worse. Look at the enemy state. France. The first estate and second estate, church and nobility, were largely tax-exempt. As we covered in the France the Enemy arc of nine episodes, the first estate paid little tax, and that was all voluntary gifts, which were never too high because that might have set a bad precedent. The second estate, the nobility, was exempt from direct taxation. The third estate, the commoners, bore the great burden. There were tax farmers, a scourge upon the lands, private, semi-militarized bands that were determined to collect what they could. They pulled down houses so they could sell the beams. The French peasants, between the taxes they paid at multiple levels, tithes, corvées, and required payments to their lords, were effectively paying 80% of the returns on their labor in tax of all kinds. You can get away with kicking your peasants in the teeth for a long time but it didn't end well for the monarchy or nobility of France. So actually, that thought that the British system could hardly be considered beneficial 
but oh my God, look at France. Uh, It delights me in a special way today. I swear I never intentionally, consciously made this a theme, but now I recall I've said this about many British institutions and practices. Um, Taxation was a big one, obviously. Naval dockyard practices, labor practices, colonial practices, the provision of public goods, you know, corvée versus voluntary subscription. Concepts of private property, that's a huge one. A criminal justice, the rights of the nobility and power of the church. Religious toleration, inheritance laws. Oh, censorship and the cabinet noir. It just goes on. Okay, corruption, nepotism, and patronage. All British problems. All way worse in France. And this just emerged naturally from having the context as I was chatting with Cammy after a nice Thai dinner. Yes, you pity Cammy. It gives me confidence we're on the right path. Uh, brand new thought, lots of shambolic, not-so-great British practices, institutions, areas of progress. But compare them to France, the most powerful enemy, and they look really, really good. Good enough, I guess, for a miracle. All right, my feelings about this don't matter. The tax-collecting civil service was run pretty well, and we actually know a bit more than usual about this. From France, we have the words of the critics. From Britain, we have the words of the poet Robert Burns, who was an excise collector. Not a job he loved, but one run efficiently by the standards of the time, and most corruption anticipated and preempted. Besides tax collections to fund war, there was a kind of economic management at the heart of the financial system, that is, the currency and coinage, the pound sterling. Though originally a unit of silver, it was gold-based, especially after Isaac Newton's reforms, which overvalued silver in regards to gold. In a textbook case of Gresham's Law, most silver was driven overseas or into hordes. Uh, By the way, I often hear people saying Gresham's Law doesn't really work, but we have so many cases of it working exactly this way. Old and worn silver coins still circulated, but not many, and there were constant shortages of copper coins. In fact, most of the small coins in circulation were forgeries. Instead of Britannia, the coin would read British girl. I mean, not even really making a lot of effort to hide the counterfeit. By 1787, 92% of copper coins were counterfeits. Companies sometimes coped by paying workers in tokens, in kind, or by providing a company store called the truck system, In fact, many have noted, as does Mokir, that it's bizarre that such an advanced commercial economy would be so backward with its own coinage. But the people appointed to run the mint were no longer Isaac Newton's. They were lazy political appointees, there for the salary, not the work. Eventually, Thomas Williams, the Welsh copper magnate we've talked about, started to issue copper coins in the 1780s, and mint officials were fine with this private coinage. John Wilkinson, Iron Mad John, also issued his own copper coins after being frustrated by the inability to pay workers, and these were known as willies and became widely accepted. Also, Bolton and James Watt used the steam engine to make super high-quality coins, and by 1800, 600 tons of copper coins had been issued, worth over a 100,000 pounds. And the government finally took back the monopoly of coinage in 1817, with the Mint taking its responsibilities more seriously after that time. One reason the great and the good let the problem go on so long was that they were doing fine. Like every commercial economy everywhere, they created their own money. Legislation was passed in the 1690s, allowing inland bills of exchange to circulate and be assignable, 
payable to the bearer, like a bearer bond, meaning that for those who would accept them, they had a new form of money. Country banks could issue small denomination notes up to five pounds, though this was occasionally forbidden, and within London's county, the Bank of England had a monopoly on issuing banknotes. So these circulated along with gold and were convertible to gold until 1797, when Britain was sending so much gold overseas to pay its allies against France that there was a shortage of gold and the government suspended the convertibility of banknotes to gold. This lasted 21 years before restoring the gold standard. The result was, wait for it, I'll say it, trust me, the inevitable inflation, the greatest ever since Tudor times when Aztec and Inca silver fluttered into Europe. So monetary management was also sort of shambolic, merely good enough, and once again, far, far better managed than France, which suffered from insanely high inflation after the revolution. And we'll wrap up this discussion with some money supply statistics from Mokyur. After 1750, the money supply was 30 million pounds. And of course, all these estimates are going to be soft and squishy. 30 million pounds, of which 18 million were coins, 4 million were Bank of England banknotes. So that leaves you with about 8 million pounds of what's termed inside money. Inside money is money created by the banking system itself. By 1790, on the eve of the Long War, the money supply has increased to 76 million, with 44 million in coins, 12 million in banknotes, meaning 22 million of inside money. So inside money is still less than a third of the total, but by 1870, it becomes the overwhelming majority of the money supply. So we have an industrial revolution, really, without a well-developed monetary system. The Bank of England became the true lender of last resort only in the 1840s. This was a big step because before this, a business cycle-driven downturn or financial mismanagement in country banks would lead to payments being suspended as banks and companies failed. And remember, the number of bankruptcies would double in these crises, 1825 and 1837. Well, modern theories that you should expand the money supply in downtimes to prevent the economy from seizing up. But without a lender of last resort, you get the opposite, and the money supply plunges at precisely the wrong time. Of course, there's no free lunch in this universe, at least under the local laws of physics we know about. So the consequence is, of course, inflation. And can we make any definite conclusions about how the government helped or hindered the Industrial Revolution? We had our tenuous links to the poor laws in, episode, in the first episode, which increased labor mobility and, and was also a response to the labor mobility. And this was a uniquely British thing. The Industrial Revolution was embedded in it. And improved labor mobility allows for regional specialization, which is economy boosting. It eliminated the famines that the rest of Europe was still having, and with the population explosion from the end of the Western marriage pattern, that helped living standards remain high compared to the continent. And we saw that the government mainly did things well by not doing much. I don't mean that in a libertarian, laissez-faire sort of enlightenment way. I mean that the government is basically totally decentralized and staffed mainly by volunteers. The central government spent 90% of its revenues on war and 90% of its personnel were devoted to tax collection. Therefore, it did little and avoided all the horrible developments of bureaucracy in what were the leading countries of France and Spain that were essentially dramatically slowed by regulation and requirement for permission to do anything. 
There was the generally mild criminal justice system, bloody codes notwithstanding, the mild response to rioting, rather than send thousands to the galley fleets to serve as slaves for 20 years, they sent mere hundreds at a time to first Georgia and then Australia when large-scale rioting occurred. The story of the West Country weavers and the silk workers in London complicates the story of a resolute government refusing to give in to worker demands against technology and machinery. The government did enough to save the woolen industry in Yorkshire and the cotton industry from the Luddites. But the West Country and the silk industry giving in to worker demands caused unnecessary poverty. And that might have been okay for the initial workers, but this came at the expense of their children and grandchildren. And with the patent system and the tax system and monetary system, we can't say the government did a particularly good job. But again and again, we see it being better than the continent, and obviously things were good enough. The main thing the government did well was to win the war. They fought it with money to a huge degree. Those wooden ships, I mean, a first rate had a hundred guns, a quantity you might see a 60,000 man field army walking around, equipped at the time, walking around Europe, only a hundred guns, and there were over a hundred ships of the line. I'm not saying they were all first rates. There were also millions in subsidies to allies, keeping men in the field that otherwise would not have been there fighting Napoleon. The British field armies in the Peninsular War and at Waterloo were particularly well-equipped and supplied with gold. And we'll be talking more about this. And with that, we're going to leave behind Mokir's excellent book, The Enlightened Economy. We did 20 episodes, got into the entanglement of the Enlightenment with the Industrial Revolution, looked at technological developments, many different industries, and explored the growing skill sets of the working men and the unique ways they had to learn their skills. We reviewed the social norms of entrepreneurs and how that related to both social credit and financial credit, and we've created a lot of context for our eventual discussion of the causes of the Industrial Revolution and the consolidation of the miracle. Next, we'll do a mini-arc on Enlightenment philosophy, hopefully an answer to the question of how did we get to the Enlightenment we ended up having? Okay, we'll figure it out. (laughs) Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. (laughs) 